Hello and welcome to The Scrum, a podcast about politics from Beacon Hill to the Beltway. I'm Adam Riley, and I'm joined by Peter Kadzis, senior editor of WGBHnews.org. Hello, Peter. Great to be here, Adam. So a lot's been said in the past few days about the attacks on Paris, but maybe one of the most surprising outcomes was how quickly the conversation here in the U.S. turned into this heated debate between governors, mostly Republican governors, and the federal government about whether or not to allow Syrian refugees into the country. Our own governor, Charlie Baker, is right smack dab in the middle of that debate. We're going to talk about that later in the podcast. But first, Peter, you sat down earlier this week with two people who know quite a bit about security and international politics to get their take on all this. Adam, that's right. I talked with Juliet Kayam, who served in top positions in Homeland Security here in Massachusetts and in Washington. She's also the host of our companion GBH podcast, Security Mom. Charlie Sennett joined us. He's the head of the Ground Truth Project here at WGBH, and as a foreign correspondent, has covered bombings in Jerusalem, Beirut, New York. If a bomb went off, he was probably there. So the idea here was to try to get ahead of the headlines. I'm not sure if we did. You judge. Juliet, welcome. Thank you for having me. Charlie, glad you could make it. Thanks, Peter. Good to be here. Listen, I wonder if the long-term anxiety that results from the orchestrated anarchy of the Paris terror attacks is ultimately worse than the immediate shock. People in the United States, after all, enjoy unprecedented control over their daily lives. Is our self-obsessed society capable of synthesizing private space with public threat? What can we expect as a result of this? Juliet, do you want to take a stab at this? I, I think my worry of the biggest threat right now is that we react to what we're feeling right now. For someone who spent a career in homeland security in government, and I also have three kids, um, I sometimes wonder what world are people living in that was perfectly safe? I mean, in other words, when people ask me, am I safe? I say we try to minimize the, minimize the risk. We try to support uh, and protect. Uh, we uh, invest in, in response capabilities in our first responders. But in a society like ours, you're never going to get the risk to zero. And it's never been at zero. Uh, so maybe what we need to start doing is talking like we do to our kids, right, which is we're going to minimize the risk for you. Put your helmet on, you know, put your seatbelt on. But the benefit of being in our society is going to large sporting events, going to shopping malls, uh, uh, being in public spaces, at concerts. And despite everything going on, we still live in a relatively safe society. Charlie, how about you? The clash between private space and public threat. I think it's a big part of the landscape of the conflict we're in. When ISIS took on this attack in Paris, it sent out a really clear message, which if you hadn't heard it from the downing of the plane, uh, the Russian plane, or the, the attacks, not to forget, in Lebanon as well, is that they're going global. And it's very different. I've covered terrorism for more than 25 years in Beirut, in Lebanon, in, in Israel-Palestine, uh, Belfast, Medellin, Colombia, Boston, New York City. The truth is, what we're facing with ISIS, I think, is fundamentally different than other brands of terror. 
it's similar to al-Qaeda because it's, they want a global war. But what I worry about, and to go to your question about public spaces, is if we change our lives too much, they win. If we allow ourselves to recognize this really is a global war and we confront it as if they are worthy of us declaring a traditional war, a conventional war, 150 airstrikes by, by France in the immediate <laughs> aftermath, those feel like revenge attacks, not a strategy. Yeah. And I worry about us going in that direction. As much as I understand it, all of us understand that our heart goes out to France and we want to help them do what they can. But when we allow ourselves to change our lives too significantly, they win and they actually, you fuel their fantasy that this is a global war. So we have to be smart, sophisticated, fight on many fronts, but not allow them to change who right. we are. I, I want to pick up on what Charlie said because you're starting to already hear, at least in the political space, this idea that we need to do more. And I'm putting more in quotes if you could see me. Uh, and I think it's incumbent on us as a society, uh, given the the failures and I think the mistakes of the war in Iraq, to really push on what does more mean. What does more mean? And I think when you really get down to it, it means ground troops. That's a fair argument for those people who believe it. But we got to speak honestly about what is being said now in light of Paris and 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 the critiques of the strategy. And if that's the case, then let's have the argument on that level. But what I want to remind people who think more is the right strategy, we had half a million troops in between Iraq and Afghanistan over the last 14 or 15 years. The London attacks still happened. The Spanish attacks still happened. The lone wolf attacks still happened. Mumbai still happened. I mean... I don't mean to be fatalistic. I, I promise you I am not. I've spent a career trying to defend people. Uh, but I also don't think that there's a pixie dust out there. These are long-term struggles of which sometimes we, we lose a battle. Our president has a lot of strengths. But he, he deserves a fair bit of criticism in how he's confronted or failed to confront ISIS in Syria. I don't think the strategy's been coordinated, and I've been saying this for many months. This is not in reaction to Paris. For many months, we have foundered and stumbled and not thought through what is the strategy. Sadly, a strategy's begun to emerge in recent weeks, and they've had some success. They, they worked with the Kurds to take Sinjar to cut off the supply lines. They went after a, an, and executed on a drone strike that took out Mwazi known as Jihadi John, a phrase I hate to use, but it's what everyone knows, as the guy in the terrible black mask with the British accent who stood over Jim Foley with a knife as he proceeded to execute him publicly. They killed him, and that is uh, a form of justice, I guess. And I guess they've begun to be effective, and then these France attacks happen. They're not disconnected. I think uh, ISIS senses it's under attack on the, on the battlefield, so they're going to expand the battlefield. What I haven't heard from President Obama is that Churchillian moment of recognizing that we need to do more and, and explaining to us it's too professorial. It's the same way I'd imagine many people in the African-American community might have felt with all of the problems until finally there was a moment where he made that speech, the Amazing Grace speech in, in Charlotte, where he stepped forward and he said, we have to do better. I'm waiting for that moment 
Look, I think we uh, are lucky to have a president who actually has the intellectual capacity to think this through on many levels. He, he has, I think, the ability to, to work strategically with the military to do and step up the campaign against ISIS in Syria as he is doing. But he's got to do more of it, more aggressively, with troops on the ground. I, I am not a hawk, typically, but on ISIS I have been for a very long time. And the other, the other aspect of this is to recognize it's a war of ideas. And this is all about ideas. And believe me, we uh, in America and in France and in the other nations of the world that believe in freedom have the better idea. But we need to get out there and tell the world in an incredibly convincing way, this is a war of ideas and we're going to win it because we have the better idea. We're not hearing that clearly enough, emotionally enough, or politically powerfully enough. Let, let me ask you both about longevity. Mm -hmm. Every now and then, some expert will say, this can't go on forever. I, I counter and say, why not? You know, let's look at history. 17th century Europe had a 30-year war called the 30-year war. Conflict in Ireland lasted for generations. The, A mere 800 years. Yeah. <laughs> Ditto in and around Palestine. Um, am I wrong? Can't this continue for a generation or two? It, it depends on what you mean by continue. And I always hated when the administration talked about defeating ISIS. Uh, you're going to disrupt them. You're going to immobilize them. You're going to kill them. You're going to do all sorts of things uh, to make their impact less significant. We had a big setback in Paris. Uh, and we will continue to have setbacks. But the, the idea and when you were talking about the president, he does take the long view. And I know that's horrible to say in the context of over 100 people dead in Paris. But I do think that over time, the best we can do is minimize the impact of, of a group like ISIS and then begin to address the long-term issue that Charlie was talking about, which you, the U.S. won't lead, which is clearly a division or a, a radicalization in a, a part of the world and in a religion that we fool ourselves as we think that, that we own that. So I think that... Uh, I think there will be this struggle for a long time. I would never say it's going to be a war. I would never... It, it, but I think that we can manage it. Look, Nazism did not die with Hitler, um, but it became insignificant. And that's maybe the strategy we should deal with. Charlie. I would say the 30-year war, the troubles in Northern Ireland and Israel-Palestine are very different because you have uh, insurgencies, extremist groups at times, whether it's the IRA or the PLO, who have nationalist aspirations. Northern Ireland, the IRA wants Brits out of Northern Ireland. In Israel-Palestine, the PLO wanted its land back from 1967, and some would argue from 1948. It was about Israeli occupation. That is not ISIS. ISIS is not about nationalist aspirations. ISIS is about a global phenomena, an idea of a worldwide caliphate. It's apocalyptic, it's a death cult, and it has more to do with Charlie Manson than it does with our classic understanding of terrorism. Fight it like the crime that it is, execute on every level you have to, and don't allow them to define this in a sweeping global narrative. Defeat them on words, ideas, and also in the field. Final question. Let's go local. Hmm. Uh, Juliet, let, let's start with you. 
Very simple. Where does this leave New England? Where does it leave Massachusetts? Where does it leave Boston? I am a citizen of a state in which uh, where the governor has decided he will be one of more than half the governors of the United States uh, to prohibit, if that's even lawful, uh, Syrian refugees from coming here. I am uh, I am the only, you know, I, I am keenly aware of the refugee vetting process. It comes out of the Department of Homeland Security. I know why it takes 18 to 24 months for a single refugee to get through the process. That includes women and children. I know how tough it is. Uh, could it get tougher? Maybe. Uh, but I want people to think about that decision in the context of our safety and security. When people ask me, we in this country are not facing what Europe is facing. We have invested in this country in the acceptance and integration and um, and welcomingness of uh, generations of immigrants, many of them refugees. Uh, we assimilate well. And so when you look to Europe, uh, their threat is not the Syrians. It is the French. It is the British. It is the Belgians. It is them. We don't have that issue. We have a problem. I live in Boston. I know that. We had the Boston Marathon. So when we make a decision, a sort of knee-jerk decision uh, about we're not going to allow the Syrian refugees, we, uh, we are inconsistent with a tradition that has actually made us safer. And we are proving, or we seem to be living up to the caricature that ISIS says of us. Uh, these are Syrian Muslim refugees. Uh, and they are men, women, and children who are leaving the very horror that we are trying to protect ourselves from. Charlie, now to you. Locally, where does this leave us? Well, I mean, I really, I really am in sync with what Juliet had to say here, that, that what is strong is a deep tradition of welcoming immigrants to this country, whether they share our religious views or not. The whole country is founded on that and strengthened by it. So I would say I was very sad to hear the governor go in a different direction on that. I think that weakens us, that we are stronger and we inoculate ourselves against terrorism in a way that Europe has never figured out by really celebrating religious diversity, allowing many people to come in, and being a, a strong country that embraces that tradition. But I also think Boston has something else that we share with many cities and that's resiliency. Boston rebounded after the marathon. Belfast has rebounded after all those many years of bombing attacks. The glass is back in the bars in Belfast. Jerusalem, I lived there for five years. I had two kids born there. We raised kids amid bus bombings. We know how parents feel when you're afraid in a city that's under attack. But one of the proudest things I saw was when shop owners in Jerusalem would sweep up the glass and get back to their cafe life as an act of defiance against the terrorists, that you're not going to change us. We're seeing that now on the streets of Paris, which are on edge, fearful. Yet there are these moments where I think the French are very good at defiance and at, at resisting tyranny. And I, I think what we want to do in Boston is stand as a small example of, of how we resisted that with the marathon bombings. And now that France faces this far bigger, much more dramatic challenge, support them in their natural state of defiance. The French are really good at that, right? You only have to have watched, like, the last scene at Casablanca when they all sing the French national anthem to feel this is a country that understands uh, the courage to stand up to tyranny as they did against Nazi Germany. 
and we got this one. And we're gonna, we should just publicly send out the message to France that we're standing in strong solidarity. Boston strong is France strong. Charlie, on that optimistic and somewhat aggressive note, let's call it quits. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Julia. Thank you, Peter. So we just heard a little bit there from Juliet and Charlie about how the attacks in Paris have brought the Syrian refugee crisis home to the U.S. in a way that's turned really political. Peter, I wanted to get your take on how this argument is unfolding here in Massachusetts. As you know, Governor Charlie Baker said earlier this week that he was reluctant to accept refugees in from Syria unless he knew they'd been vetted well. That in the course of maybe three minutes of really, really aggressive questioning by WCVB's Janet Wu turned into the governor saying he wasn't interested in having Syrian refugees here. That turned into Baker backs a ban on Syrian refugees, along with 31 currently uh, other governors from around the country. What do you think of the pushback that Baker got, especially from prominent Democrats like Congressman Seth Moulton? There's a lot of hypocrisy in the pushback Baker's getting, and I am not, repeat, not calling Moulton a hypocrite. Noted. Um, first of all, let me give you my take so people can understand what I'm about to say. I'll put it in perspective. Um, I think the, the current policy we have on Syrian refugees is fine. I wish it were better, and I hope there aren't any holes in it, but it's fine until proven guilty. So when you say you wish it were better, you mean you wish it were a little more thorough or a little more uh, uh, rigorous? No, I, I wish it were a little more ex expansive while uh, still being rigorous. Um, but listen, to get to the question you asked, tone matters. Baker and Jeb Bush should not be lumped in with the likes of Ted Cruz. You know, I disagree with both Baker and Bush, but they're being cautious, not inflammatory. We can't be pillaring everyone we disagree with. Remind me and our listeners what it was that Jeb Bush said. Baker, I already kind of ran through. He was backed into a corner, it sounded like to me. And then the next day came out and said, he wasn't walking back his comments, and then I thought kind of proceeded to walk him back a little bit. What did Jeb Bush do? <laughs> Listen, no one's ever going to accuse Jeb Bush of being verbally skillful, but he's been misrepresented. He's gotten the worst of the deal. Bush talked about one orphans, two Christians, and three other Syrian religious minorities. The Yazidis, for example— a minority that are persecuted as badly as the Christians. And what, what bugs me is most of the secular press doesn't realize that Christians are probably the most persecuted minority in the Middle East. As a matter of fact, the New York Times in July of this year ran a story on its news pages wondering whether Christianity could survive another several years of mm. this. They're not crazy concerns. That doesn't mean Bush was right, however. So you thought that Bush was making a somewhat reasonable argument about accepting a, a more discreet, selective group of refugees into the country, and that then that was represented as he only wants Christians? He was making an argument that's been made in Australia and England and other parts of the world, an argument I disagree with, that minorities most at risk and orphans are a minority, should be privileged. 
I disagree with that, but it is not a crazy argument. So why did Baker get hit so hard by so many Democrats? And Marty Walsh, who stood there on day one of this whole episode and basically said, I'm with the governor, then issued a statement uh, that was emailed out to the press that afternoon. Why didn't Walsh take more of a hit on this? I don't know. I mean, listen, Bill Keating hasn't taken a hit. Congress, his fellow congressman, um, Steve Lynch, hasn't taken a hit. Well, on I see this. a pattern as you say that the people who haven't taken a hit are Democrats and Baker's a Republican. Hence my use of the H word for hypocrisy. Listen, we're a very liberal, essentially Democratic state. Baker is an anomaly. This isn't going to hurt them in the long run. Uh, do you think that Democrats are rushing to pin this on Baker because they've had so much trouble pinning anything else on him so far? You know, that could be. I don't really know. Um, you know, tensions are high. Um, even though the, the discourse isn't very elevated here, it's not as crazy as it is in other parts of the country. Maybe we all just want to get in, in on some of the craziness. All right. That is going to do it for this week's Scrum. Peter Kadzis, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here, although the topic's a real bummer. Thanks also to Juliet Kayyem and Charlie Sennett for joining us and to our production staff for this episode, Amanda McGowan, Catherine Whalen, and Doug Shugart. Thanks to you as well for listening. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.